Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. Hey, come on in. It's a three martini lunch. He's Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We've got good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. Jim, the, the good one's a little odd. It definitely has a huge twinge of crazy to it. It's Adam Schiff. He's one of these responsible committee chairman that Nancy Pelosi says is going to get to the bottom of it. It's not going to be a circus. It's going to be this sober, hard look at the facts. It's not going to be partisan. We're just going to see if the president is violating his constitutional oath. So what does Adam Schiff do at the beginning of Thursday's hearing with the acting director of the Office of National Intelligence? He completely distorts the contents of the president's uh, call with the Ukrainian president based on yesterday's transcript release. Here's Adam Schiff explaining what he thinks the transcript says. is the essence of what the president communicates. We've been very good to your country. Very good. No other country has done as much as we have. But you know what? I don't see much reciprocity here. I hear what you want. I have a favor I want from you, though. And I'm going to say this only seven times, so you better listen good. I want you to make up dirt on my political opponent, understand lots of it. On this and on that, I'm going to put you in touch with people, not just any people. I'm going to put you in touch with Attorney General of the United States, my Attorney General, Bill Barr. He's got the whole weight of the American law enforcement behind him. And I'm going to put you in touch with Rudy. You're going to love him, trust me. You know what I'm asking, and so I'm only going to say this a few more times, in a few more ways. And by the way, don't call me again. I'll call you when you've done what I asked. This is, in sum and character, what the president was trying to communicate with the president of Ukraine. It would be funny if it wasn't such a graphic betrayal of the president's oath of office. Jim, that's not at all what he's trying to communicate. I don't know where he's getting the part about the end of the call about don't call me back until this is taken care of. A dig up dirt on my opponent or make up dirt. The president did ask him to look into it, which carries its own uh, issues that we've talked about a lot in the last couple of days. But what do you make of Schiff completely beclowning himself as this whole thing gets going? Yeah. So if you're you know, if you want to see Trump stay in office, if you don't want to see him impeached, Adam Schiff did you a really big favor today. <laughs> what that is, because look, that that transcript is not look good. Even if there's no explicit quid pro quo, it's not hard to see what the president was getting at. Uh, in previous podcasts, I've laid out my gripes. I wrote about it yesterday in the corner. But so the, the Democrats could, you know, conceivably start persuading the country to say, look, this is different. Uh, we are not doing this out of partisan animosity. We are not doing this because we're worried about 2020. We're doing this because we're convinced the president broke the law. And to demonstrate this, we are going to be honest. We are going to be clear. We are going to be very, you know, we're going to have absolute uh, uh, no wiggle room or fuzziness. We're going to tell you the facts as they are because the facts are bad. And the first thing that Schiff decides to do is what he later on describes as a parody. You know, if the facts are so bad, you don't have to make anything up. And in fact, my assessment was that the facts were pretty bad. But his verse, and what's really weird is he begins by saying things that are close enough to the official transcript. Now I know it's not really a transcript, it's a readout, but you've got a bunch of people all in the room, all taking notes and all transcribing it simultaneously. So this is as close to a uh, official transcript as you're going to get. 
And then he says this, you know, it's not until you get to like the seven times that he starts saying, you know, anything that could remotely be considered as a joke or, or something like that. Up until that point, Schiff is just saying, here's what I wish the president had said, because it would be even more explicit. And that's not what you're supposed to. I mean, Schiff has kind of beclowned himself for the whole time. He was among the first people to say Mueller didn't look hard enough. He didn't investigate the president's finances enough. All that kind of stuff. He's playing down to type. And if you're Trump, if you're the Republicans, that's exactly what you want to see. And you kind of have to have this, you know, wonder how many Democrats are kind of, you know, rolling their eyes or, or groaning at this because you have what you think is an ironclad case. You don't need to gild the lily. You don't need to exaggerate. The facts by themselves are supposed to be bad enough. But if they're not, people are going to think, eh, you know, it's the same old thing. They've been trying to go after this guy since Russiagate. Uh, they couldn't believe they lost in 2016. This is just more of the same. And if it's not more of the same, the Democrats have to behave differently. And they're not. And uh, so that's probably the first major mistake of the Democrats. What are we on? Day two? Not bad. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't take long. <laughs> but here, here's the larger thing, Jim. And I don't know if this is uh, unique to Adam Schiff or it shows the partisanship towards Trump or the partisanship that just engulfs this town and increasingly this country where people don't even hear what people said anymore. They hear what they wanted to hear and hope that they heard because it makes their political case for them. Is this just unique to this particular hearing and Adam Schiff or is this almost uh, a, a window into how people view their political opponents these days. I, I think you're right. I think it's, it's a question of the, the first thing is that if you ideally, if you go into journalism, you should have a taste for precision. If you go into the law, you should have a case for precision. It matters whether you're uh, whether somebody said yes or somebody said no, uh, or even a yes or a eh, maybe probably, you know, you kind of have to, you know, the, the, in a court of law, these things matter. In our politics, these things should matter. In journalism, these, these things should matter. Paraphrasing your opponent is probably not good enough if you want to persuade people. You know, if, the, if the quote really is bad, then say so. Uh, you and I have talked about um, how often you'll see the headline, you know, GOP lawmaker, and then they say something stupid. Uh, whether it's, you know, women should be back in the kitchen and barefoot and pregnant or, you know, something like that. Whenever you hear the term GOP lawmaker, GOP lawmaker is a synonym for some guy who you've never heard of. Um, and it's, you know, now here's the thing. When it turns out to be some state house member up in New Hampshire who says something like that's unfortunate. But, you know, is this nationwide news coast to coast? Eh, probably not. Right. You know, we had a whole bunch of elected officials in this country. Sooner or later, one of them is going to turn out to be a moron. In fact, some might argue lots of them are morons, right? So, you know, guy you've never heard of, but member of a political party says something stupid is pretty clearly meant you to say, you are not supposed to think well of this uh, political party. Look at this guy over in this state over here. He said something really stupid. He reflects upon that. And what's more, you know, you end up with a lot of questions in which every, you know, uh, center, every Republican law, uh, candidate in a cycle had to, had to answer for Todd Aiken. Right, right. right. Um, you know, the argument couldn't be, no, Cory Gardner is a completely different human being from uh, Todd Aiken. They have nothing, you know, they don't share the same viewpoints. They doesn't believe that there's, uh, that rape can't cause pregnancy, as, as Aiken famously said. You know. But the reason for that is, well, this Republican has said something controversial, wrong, and very offensive to many people. So the question is, just how many Republicans secretly agree with the rambling moron? <laughs> you know, it's not hard to figure out what's going on here, you know? 
but so yeah, what people is they hear what they want to hear, and even if you know, like I guess I guess the the aspect that I find most fascinating, you and I will periodically say, yeah, you know, Joe Manchin is is probably our, our one of our favorite Democrats, or there are the, there are intermittent cases of Democrats who will defy their party, um, or actually Kirsten Cinema is turning into a very strong candidate for uh, for that. Tulsi Gabbard used to be until she you know started brunching with Assad. Um, <laughs> oh, that. You know, this observation, though, like, hey, there could be some good people on the other side of the aisle. You know, they, they, they could be right about things every now and then, or they might have a legitimate point. And there's this fear that if you acknowledge that, that all of a sudden the, the, the foundation of your worldview will turn to sand. <laughs> everything, will, everything built upon it will crumble. Um, I think most people aren't actually that deeply insecure, but I think partisan politics, uh, part of, politics you know, attracts people who need to believe in something. And that faith is total. That faith is absolute. You know, and you can't say, well, actually, somebody on our side said something stupid. Um, because all of a sudden, no, no, our side is the good guys. Their side is the bad guys. Well, there's Adam Schiff's performance today, which obviously uh, was not very impressive. And so that will certainly give grist for uh, people to think this is all a farce. Uh, Plenty of people who already thought that. But let's talk about the actual whistleblower report, because for the second straight day, Jim, we've got a short declassified document. So people with even the slightest bit of motivation can actually get through it. So congratulations, Washington. And what we saw in this nine pages is most of what we already knew based on the transcript yesterday, but also the news that the contents, the, the, the notes, the transcript, as best we have it of that conversation, was locked up in a way that uh, is generally reserved for national security information being deeply sensitive rather than what this whistleblower deemed as political information being deeply sensitive. In other words, the, uh, the request to investigate the Bidens and see what happened with that prosecutor and whether there's any there there. So, Jim, uh, there's also a lot of background information provided by this whistleblower, all sorts of allusions to reports going back to the, the spring and so forth, which leads a lot of people to believe. And in fact, it even says in the whistleblower account that he had a lot of help from other people who, you know, actually heard the call and other developments that have happened along the way when it comes to Ukraine policy. So a lot of people believe that this is cut and dried because so many national security professionals helped to, or at least gave him information to help put this report together. Then on the other side, you've got uh, righties from the national security community like Fred Flight saying, this is so thorough it seems fishy. It's almost like he got help from the House Intelligence Committee. So now there's a little bit of conspiracy flying around there. So what do you see in this report, and how does it change what we knew 24 hours ago? The, the job of the president requires them to speak to foreign leaders. The, you know, the wheels of government require those calls to be recorded uh, for, for accuracy's sake. They're not recorded like electronically, but to have the note-takers. So that, you know, if they need to go back and say, wait, did Prime Minister so-and-so say that he would agree to that? Um, you probably have other people who are important to that, you know, particular leader, that region from the intelligence community, either listening in directly when the call is going on in the White House Situation Room or reading the transcripts, reading that to keep them updated on what's going on. You know, what did this foreign leader say? This means that a lot of people have access to the things that the president says. Executive privilege had been established a long time ago under the idea that when the president needs to get advice from people, the president needs to have conversations with people. The, you know, on the one hand, we have government records laws saying that just about everything government does should be, you know, the public should be able to take a look at that. Executive privilege is one of the example is one of the exceptions to this because the president needs to get unvarnished advice, and sometimes he's got to be, have the privacy to say things that 
you know, would be difficult to or, or, you know, politically challenging to disclose to the public. And by the way, if you're saying, oh, you know, Jim, uh, the public can handle it. Look, the public can't handle the argument that our entitlement programs are going to run out of money. I mean, no, the public doesn't want to hear all, you know, will react strongly to all kinds of statements that they don't like, but who are simultaneously true. And for a whole bunch of presidencies, this really wasn't that much of an issue. Probably the closest parallel we had was when Lewinsky was, uh, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky were canoodling. There was a question about whether they would call Secret Service agents to testify before the House because they could verify were the president and Monica Lewinsky ever alone together on this date in this place and stuff like that. And a whole bunch of people who, by the way, are really trying to go after Trump now were apoplectic at that because of the argument that basically this would say, hey, wait a second, the president has an expectation of privacy of these sorts of things. And the Secret Service agents, like, they're not supposed to be there. They're not supposed to get dragged into these partisan wars and stuff like that. Their job is to protect the president. They're not supposed to talk about what they see or what they don't see. Uh, I think it was Kessler had a really fascinating book about being on the presidential uh, security detail. And if you're on the presidential security detail, you hear and see everything, presumably. I assume there's 24 uh, seven you know, monitoring of the president in one form or another, which means when he goes to take a whiz, somebody's listening probably. <laughs> when so the president and the, the first lady are doing things, they're probably somebody listening to that stuff. This is, you know, this is part of the things about having 24 seven security on this. And the kind of the whole agreement had always been anybody who's part of this security apparatus was never gonna talk about that. Otherwise the presidency can't function. You, you just can't. So president needs to talk to foreign leaders. They have recordings like this. They, they keep track of it. You know, if you're going to be this kind of whistleblower, you better have, you know, the most smoking gun, ironclad, indisputable Donald Trump is shooting people on Fifth Avenue level. line, <laughs> And it really can't be a policy difference. Now, I wrote yesterday about Trump and, and uh, Ukraine and Russia, and I got really big policy differences with this president. But he's got the right to have those differences. You know, you don't want to reach the point where, well, having this position uh, on this particular country or this particular issue is criminal. Now, you know, is it abuse of power to say, yeah, we're not going to give you any foreign aid until you, uh, you until you uh, give us some good dirt on Biden? Yeah. The more explicit it is, the bigger and clearer it is. I think the single most important thing in the whistleblower report is the claim that Trump actually did cancel security aid to Ukraine. Now, there's a question about how much this order got carried out, kind of like what was going on with the Mueller stuff. Um, but that's the clearest case. That's the one where you can do it. But all this stuff about somebody heard from somebody heard it's for somebody else, um, this whistleblower clearly did his homework. This whistleblower clearly gathered as much information as possible and did his absolute best to lay out a case for impeachment for the, you know, the Democrats. Um, the, apparently the initial assessment of the inspector general of the intelligence community was that there was some reason to think this person might have a partisan preference for the presidency. I don't know whether that was a reference to Biden or something like that. We're going to find out about that. Um, the fact that the whistleblower's lawyer donated to Biden in this cycle does not, I would have preferred to avoid that. That doesn't make things look good. That doesn't make you look like you have no partisan agenda and you're only coming forward for the good of the country. If there was ever any doubt that yesterday hadn't set off a whole streak of dominoes, this just this is just now domino number two. There are going to be hearings on this. My guess is they're probably going to subpoena Rudy Giuliani, and I would not be surprised if Rudy Giuliani gave a Corey Lewandowski-level performance um, <laughs> and or some version of Al Pacino. I like to do the, I'm out of order, you're out of order, this whole court is out of order. Um, but then I said, I realized there's a whole lot of scent of the woman 
which, yes, Al Pacino, the exact same actor, gives that same version of, I'm out of order. No, let me tell you about what's out of order. You know, um, <laughs> my guess is Rudy Giuliani is going to, you know, be as combative as possible with any committee that wants to know what was he saying to the Ukrainians and why. Um, we're we're on a, as you know, I have a corner post written up on this and I don't know if one is going to go up today. Look, you know, this is the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand in terms of politics. The, the, the wheels are now in motion. We're, we are now heading towards all out. I mean, let me emphasize if anybody's thinking it's an assassination, you know, uh, a suggestion. No, no. What I mean here is that the, we are, the wheels are now in motion. This We are now headed towards impeachment, both in the House and it's going to go to the Senate. I think we can all see how this is going to shake out. Most Democrats are going to vote yes. Maybe even almost all Democrats are going to vote yes. Almost all Republicans are going to vote no. And this will wrap up sometime early in 2020. But for the next six months, it's going to be the Battle of the Somme. It's just going to be nonstop political warfare of everybody attacking everybody else with everything they got. And my suspicion is, in the end, not really all that much change. Happy Thursday, America. So to steal another line from Al Pacino in Scent of a Woman, it's just getting warmed up. <laughs> yes. Jim, it would seem the big winner, at least initially from this whole Ukraine fiasco, is Elizabeth Warren. Not only has the impeachment process ramped up concerning President Trump, but of course it all involves Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. And ultimately, that's probably not going to look that great on him, even though he's not the focal point for the House Democrats right now. So Elizabeth Warren stands to be gaining, and she's already gaining in in some polls, even before folks have really had a chance to be quizzed on what they think over the past couple of days. But Elizabeth Warren is now being asked about this. Uh, She was up in New Hampshire, according to Fox News, and she was asked if she would allow, if elected president or vice president's child, to serve on the board of a foreign company. Her quick answer, no. But when asked why, she said, I don't know. I have to go back and look at the details. And later her campaign clarified to the Washington Post that actually her plans wouldn't prevent any child of a vice president from serving on such a board. So, Jim... Wow. Turns out that uh, the ethics warrior here doesn't see a problem there at all. This is kind of fascinating. I wrote about this in the morning, Jolt. I think this is really important. And I think actually, if you want to say, what is the biggest wild card uh, in the upcoming impeachment fight that I just said is going to be really ugly? To ask the Democrats, Hunter Biden is really kind of an irrelevant side issue to all this. That what really matters here is the way uh, Trump behaved himself. It's the implication of what he said to Ukraine, the, the implied threat, um, uh, you know, the, the use of foreign authorities to investigate a political rival, et cetera, et cetera. And look, those are all big issues. But I think a whole bunch of Americans look at Hunter Biden's situation and say, you know what? This does matter. This, this Wait a second. We can't just hand wave this as saying, oh, this is no big deal. This is standard operating procedure. There's nothing to see here, et cetera, et cetera. Look. This is a, you know, going back to his work for the big bank in Delaware back when Biden was a senator, right? You have a kid who keeps stumbling into these lucrative little work jobs, opportunities, expensive gifts. And look, most of us look at that and say, okay, he's getting all of this because he's Biden's son. And when both Biden say, oh, you know, this wasn't backdoor bribery. This isn't purchasing friendship. You know, keep in mind, Greg, we live in a world where a lot of Democrats believe that campaign donations are inherently corrupting. But a Chinese tycoon giving Hunter Biden a 2.8 carat diamond as a gift isn't corrupting because Hunter Biden isn't an elected official. Right. You know, this this is the sort of thing that I think a lot of Americans look at this and say, you know what? Okay, no, that stinks. That is that is bribery. And it's also, you know, when Biden tells his tale about how gleeful he is about he strong armed those Ukrainians into firing that prosecutor that they didn't want to prosecute, that they didn't want to fire. 
a lot of Americans are going to say, wait a second, why is that hunky-dory? Why is that perfectly fine? But Trump's saying, hey, I want you to look into the Bidens because something stinks about this work for this Ukrainian gas company. Why are they you know, worlds apart? Now, my suspicion is, is that the, the attitude amongst a lot of politicians for a long time has been, look, this always happens. This is how the business community interacts with the politicians. You know, party, both parties have all kinds of, you know, every politician's got an idiot son who needs to do something. <laughs> and they, they, they need some sort of, you know, look, it's a little work job, but you're there. You get your name on the letterhead. You pose for pictures. You're around. And it looks good for us to have a Biden on staff. And in case you're wondering, this sort of thing happens with a whole bunch of politics. It's not, you know, Hunter Biden is representative of an entire species of politicians. Without, by the way, entirely separately, because I understand some folks are going to go after Hunter Biden on his issues with drugs, he had a very messy divorce, allegation of hookers, and, you know, uh, he ended up with his brother's widow. Look, it's very tough to be a successful politician's son. Uh, my suspicion is it's very hard to find your own identity, to figure out who you are and what you're going to be in this world, and you're constantly living in your father's shadow. Uh, you have any doubts about this? Take a look at the life of George W. Bush, right? And you know, the difficulties he had. It took him about 40 years to stop drinking for him to figure out what he wanted to do with his life. You can feel a certain amount of sympathy for this. I actually don't care that much about Hunter Biden's drug addiction. I think in a time when the country is dealing with an opioid addiction epidemic, I don't feel like pointing and laughing or, or finding anything you know worthy of uh, ridicule in that. Messy divorces. Lots of Americans have messy divorces. Have you met the president of the United States? To me, but you know, out of everything Hunter Biden's ever done, it's this sense of constantly falling into money, <laughs> falling into you know, unbelievably lucrative opportunities, uh, and him insisting that it's nothing to do with the fact that his father is a powerful senator and his father then went to become vice president of the United States. And I, I, I think it strains credulity. And I think a lot of Americans look at that and say, hey, you know what? This is, you know, like, you know, it's totally what Hunter Biden gets that, you know, 50 grand a month gig for, you know, he never worked in the natural, natural gas industry, but he suddenly gets this gig on the board. You know, it's not like he's going over to, to Ukraine all the time, right? This is a part-time gig and he's getting 50 grand a month. Um, that's all legal. But if you have an expired sticker for a safety inspection sticker on your car, you're getting a ticket to speak totally <laughs> hypothetically on a new car that you had for five months. And you didn't know that the, Every time some American gets in trouble with the law, they fume about it. They feel like it's unfair. They feel like they could have been cut some slack, but they weren't. But they look at Hunter Biden getting gigs like this. Oh, a Thai Chinese tycoon just gave me a huge diamond for no reason. It's totally not bribery, right? And it really sticks in their craw because 99.9% .9 of us know we're never going to get those kind of opportunities. Um, I think there is something legitimate to be very upset about that. Now, is, is it the right thing for the president of the United States to do this? No. Should the president of the United States be strong arming uh, a foreign government into doing this? No. Should the president be withholding you know, uh, security aid from a country being invaded by Russia over this? No. But the Democrats are going to hand wave all this stuff. And the fact that Elizabeth Warren got so tongue tied is an indication that first answer of no means she knows it stinks when the child of the vice president serves on the board of a foreign company. That's who, what she really wants to think. But at some point, she go, I got to go check is that recognition of who am I going to tick off if I say this should be the rule? <laughs> Who's going to say, wait a second, wait a second, I can't be your beat. <laughs> because Junior's got three other gigs lined up that are all really, he's making money hand over fist just for showing up and for having a, a nice, the right last name, you know? Uh, and like I said, this is very widespread in politics. So 
I, I you know, and the fact that she, her campaign came back and said, no, we would not have a problem. Um, even though her first answer was, no, I, I wouldn't allow that. Uh, I think it's very revealing. And, and I think, you know, you want to know what this bipolar, this populist moment that Trump tapped into, this is it in, you know, I'd say heroin form, but it probably would be a inappropriate uh, metaphor in this <laughs> context, right? You know, this is just pure concentrated fuel for populism. And the fact that uh, Warren, not even Elizabeth Warren, who's supposed to be, you know, as I put it today, Xena the warrior princess when it came to battling business interests, trying to influence policy. All of a sudden she runs into kryptonite. All of a sudden she can't, you know, doesn't want to talk about this. This is a huge factor. I think Democrats are kind of whistling past the graveyard on this. Going back to what I mentioned in the beginning about how she, at least temporarily, is the political winner in all this. It, it's also a difficult situation for her because if she goes after Biden, it makes it look like she's going soft on Trump. So I think one of the reasons why she may have gone back and maybe your ethics plan actually did say this, or at least one of them did. The fact that if she uh, looks like she's cracking down on Hunter Biden, it looks like she's perhaps being soft on, on President Trump somehow or looking like she's trying to capitalize on Biden being in trouble rather than just letting nature take its course. Yeah. Any criticism of Hunter Biden will be interpreted, I think, justifiably as, well, Trump has a point. By the way, I don't, you know, and again, that doesn't necessarily justify all of his actions, but uh, the idea that this was going on for this time uh, for all the again, the question is the, the proper solution to this would say, you know, there are just too many opportunities for backdoor bribery. There are just too many opportunities for, you know, you, you scratch my my back, I'll scratch your son's back uh, sorts of, of, you know, deals, winks and nods, hints and nudges, all that kind of stuff. We need to put restrictions on what the children of powerful politicians can do as a living. And for obvious reasons, they're not going to like that. <laughs> for a whole, you know, people might even argue about whether it's contra- you know, whether it's uh, uh, constitutional. It's one thing to limit the outside income that uh, lawmakers can make. It's another thing to limit the outside income of their family members. And yet, hiring the wife, hiring the second cousin, hiring the, the siblings, you know. Um, look, I mean, do you think uh, uh, Roger Clinton got those concert gigs in North Korea because of his pure musical talent? <laughs> You know, Billy Beer, you know, every president has, you know, every, every major political figure has at least one embarrassing relative who's cashing in on the family name. And, you know, that's uh, the, the possibility of backdoor bribery or backdoor attempts to influence a president or, or other powerful politician is, is pretty common there. I don't know if anybody's got a really great solution for this, but for most, uh, for a whole bunch of politicians, the answer has been to you know, just pretend it's not happening. Uh, and it's left to those of us like us to notice and say, hey, wait a second, there's something wrong there. Um, or to alternately insist as um, as the Bidens insist, no, we never talk about business. Never, <laughs> never, ever, ever. And you got to give Warren credit on this too, Jim. She already seems to be in mid-season form when it comes to flip-flopping. Look, you know, she, she did the carry move just faster than everyone was expected. <laughs> well, Jim, we've got a brand new soap opera in town. It's not like we didn't have one before, but now we do every single day. Enjoy. See you tomorrow. Same time, same channel. Yay. <laughs> Jim Garrity, National Review. Between Two Scorpions, I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. And thank you for being with us today. Join us again on Friday. Yes, it will really be Friday on the Three Martini Lunch.